we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. folks it's another edition of the radio show with mark lee and of course we've got another busy day here in durham i've been keeping busy with a lot of different things going on as a matter of fact last week was over there at the carolina theater where i'm at the board of and definitely was checking out a lot of things that are going on as a matter of fact this month at the end of the month we will be having a fundraising event so that's part of the reason i was over there last week was over there recording a couple of the artists jasmine kelly John Shearer, as well as um, John Howie Jr. And some of y'all may remember John Howie Jr. because his music was featured in that movie, Jeepers Creepers, which is actually one of those classic movies and all of that. And he lives here in the Triangle area and I consider him a friend and all of that. So definitely it was good catching up with him and catching up with some of the staff members. And of course, we've got a new executive director. So had a chance to talk to Randy as well as talk to some other folks that were there, including the folks from Triad Studios based in Chapel Hill that are handling the video work for us. And of course, a number of folks, including our mayor, were over there giving their testimony to the reasons that they love the Carolina Theater. So that was a great event last week, really enjoyed it. And then of course, there was a lot of other things going on. I understand that the Durham Bulls had a fan fest that I did not get a chance to make it to. So I was checking that out. And of course, I did get a chance to watch the Kentucky Derby. So that was real fun, checking that out and seeing that a small horse actually managed to win that race. So that was real fun. And definitely it looks like this is a horse that if it gets the lead, does not like to give up the lead. So that's the way that sometimes our entrepreneurs are as well. If they get ahead of the game, they try to stay ahead of the game as much as possible. So that was going on, checking that out. And of course I did check out the president's uh, speech to the Congress last week as well. So I heard that he's definitely looking at some things like police reform, looking at things like uh, maybe taxing the rich a little bit more. I know that they may not be pleased about that at all, but we'll see how that goes. And then of course was looking at some infrastructure things and also not letting folks have their money offshore as easily as they have been doing. And of course, looking at things around immigration reform and a number of things in that category as well. And of course, today was a very sad day as you know, there have been and other police uh, shootings, including one here in North Carolina at Elizabeth City. And the person who was um, 
involved in that in terms of being the victim of that, his um, funeral was today. So there was a lot going around the Brown case and all of that. So a lot of people were down here for that. I understand that even some civil rights leaders have been in this area and will be attending that service or are attending that services. I think it's going on even as we're speaking. But folks like Al Sharpton, uh, Mr. Crump, who handled the case there in uh, Minnesota, as well as a number of others have come down. I think even some of the members of the Floyd family are down here as well. So that's just some of the things that I'm aware of that are going on in our community. And as always, we've got some amazing guests. So I'm going to bring one of my guests on and see what they've got to say about what's going on in their world. So got Asia Marie Woods on with me. So we're going to talk to her and see what she's got happening in her world. So how are you doing, Asia? Glad to see hey. you here and everything. So what's happening in your world and how are you doing? I know a lot of folks are trying to survive the uh, pandemic. A lot, a lot of folks have gone out and got their vaccines, even though we still got a lot more that have to get it and everything. But just how are you doing? How is your family doing? How's everybody doing where you are? We are in Philadelphia and we are doing, uh, we're doing well. We, um, the weather is starting to get warm here. So that's exciting. Um, The COVID cases per the news are going down or trending down. So that's also good news. And looking forward to the summer. I know I have a 12 year old daughter. She's in school um, part-time, you know, they go in a couple of days and they go stay home a couple of days. So that hasn't been the best, you know. I'm, I'll be excited for next school year when all the kids can go back to school and do what they're supposed to do and leave, you know, us parents in peace. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I remember there was that famous quote that um, I forget which of the TV producers said, but they were saying that they had a lot more respect for. Um, teachers now because they had to do the teaching as well. So it's definitely yes. one of our famous <laughs> producers and they would say that they definitely have mad respect for the teachers that are out there. And I can relate to that. I'm actually one of those folks that don't have any kids, but I do have two nephews and my uh in my late fifties, but my brother was a late father as well. So my nephews are actually around that same age as okay. your daughter. So I've got a okay. nephew that born in 2008. So in August, he will turn 13 and his younger brother was born a year later. So he will turn 12. So right now they are 11 and 12 and they'll be 12 and 13 in the month of August. So they're definitely in the same age range. You know, those uh, preteen heading into the teenage years. I don't know about your daughter, but I know my nephews are very much involved in sports. My brother was glad that they were getting back out into their um, leagues mm-hmm. and things of that nature. And right. they are also very much into their video games. I know that the, one of the family outings <laughs> we worry, but I have last year, my nephew was showing me the game Roadblocks, which he is very much into. And there were a couple of other games that they were into. And I'm sitting there going like, all right, well, I'll, I'll, I'll try to hang with y'all as the uh, quote unquote cool uncle or whatever, but I'll see what right. I can do or not. So that's what I was <laughs> doing and got to hang with them on those video games. Okay. Yep, I heard of Roblox. She does play that. Um, she was she she's a swimmer, so we haven't gotten in the pool for a year now. So um, it'll be interesting to see how she you know gets her stamina back up once we go back into a pool. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm excited for things to start turning around for everyone finally, and hopefully by the end of this year we'll we'll be somewhere back to 
a norm. I think it'll be a new norm, um, but hopefully we'll be yeah. back to some kind of normalcy. <laughs> some kind of normalcy of some sort or another. I'm definitely what I'm hoping for. I know that mm -hmm. on your profile, one of the things you talk about is that you work with entrepreneurs and you encourage your clients to quote unquote, go big, never play mm -hmm. small and make sure something that I'm oftentimes fascinated by. And I'll get into this a little bit with you to make sure all their legal okay. ducks are in a row and all of that. So I'd love to hear where you, some of the clients that you're working with and some of the ways that you um, encourage them to do that. And what I was going to say about the legal ducks in a row, and I'll just go ahead and bring it up, is I work with a lot of entertainers. I work with a lot of uh, people in the arts and definitely even some small business owners as well, even some restaurant owners. And I'm oftentimes fascinated by the fact that they don't have the basics. They don't oftentimes won't have a contract, won't have a business plan won't have a number of other things that should be the very basics that you need just to run a business or just to have anything mm -hmm. of those sorts. I know that I was one time talking to Ron Thomas, I believe is his name, and he's a uh, friend of a friend's and he does some business consulting out of Dubai. And he was talking about how sometimes folks will uh, come to him wanting them to pitch a plan or, you know, sponsor or give him some funds or him give them some funds and all of that. And one of the first questions he asked them, even if they're relatives or friends of his, is that they have a business plan. And quite often mm -hmm. the answer is no. So like I said, right. I'm sure that that's mm -hmm. some of the things that you're fascinated by as yeah. well. So I was just wondering if you could share some of these business uh, pratfalls, for lack of a better term, that you wish sure. to wish folks would be more involved in that they aren't involved in. Because I agree that a right. lot of times we don't do the basics that we should. Right. And you know what? Before I was an attorney, I was one of those people. I started my first business right after college. Um, I started a makeup business. I would do makeup. I had makeup artists that worked for me and I just wanted to make money. Right. And I just wanted, I didn't have a business plan. Unfortunately, it, it cost me a lot. Of, I had to close down that business and I'll explain why shortly. It cost me a lot of money at the end um, for not having all my legal ducks in a row. So I kind of, uh, preach this sermon because of what happened to me before I went to law school and now doing what I do. So I started my makeup business in 2000. Um, when I start that 2009 um, in 2011, I got an offer to franchise the business. So basically the makeup squad, what it was called was going to be in every major city. So every city was going to have a makeup squad that would provide makeup services in that area. And we want to have an app and all of that. And this was back, you know, 10 years. Wow. It's 10 years ago. So um, I did not have um, I didn't have a trademark for the name. And I, so that means I didn't own that name nationally. Right. So I own my business in my state. But um, I wasn't able to register the trademark because there was another company with the same exact name in Texas. So, and they were using that name before me, about a year before I was. So trademark law says, whoever's the first to use it, even if they don't register that trademark, they have the right to it. And when you're trying to franchise a business, your intellectual property is what's going to basically, you're going to, you're, you're basically transferring the rights to that intellectual property to your franchisees. So um, that franchise deal fell apart for me um, in 2011. And then I went ahead and went to law school in 2012 and, um, went to law school, did very well, went to the university of Pittsburgh. I'm from Philly. Um, so I went to Pittsburgh for law school for three years. And then I came back to the Philadelphia area when I was done. And then I decided to work for myself and help entrepreneurs. Like I said, get all your legal ducks in a row, because a lot of times we get caught up in the now, like, Oh, it's just a little small business. And that's how kind of how I was thinking. I never saw a franchise deal come in my way two years 
into business. It was just me. I had a small daughter and I just love to do makeup. And I really wasn't thinking about the big picture. And there really is a big picture. And I hope I'm hoping that most people are in business for the big, the big game, right? The end game and like your exit strategy. You want to make enough money so you can exit. Um, the business can thrive without you being there and being tied down to that. And so I really try to take my entrepreneur's <laughs> mindset from I know you think it's small right now, but what do you really want at the end? Let's focus on that and then reverse engineer on how we're going to get there. Now, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you bring up a couple of things that I, I'm fascinated by and all of that. One of those is I do feel that a lot of times we don't think about generational wealth and all of that. I know that even in my own family, we have land in Halifax, North Carolina, and definitely on that land is timber and, of course, even some crops and some other things. So we do have uh, land that is been handed down generation to generation and hopefully it will continue. Because as a matter of fact, I know right. cousins that have uh, had relatives that have passed like their parents and everything. And that property is now, you know, under their uh, guidance and everything. So it does look like it's going generation to generation, but we oftentimes don't talk about generational wealth. And we also oftentimes don't always come from entrepreneurial background. So I was that's one of the first questions I was gonna ask you. Were your parents entrepreneurs or were you like the kid that, that <laughs> when you were a youngster, they just knew you were gonna be selling lemonade uh and on the stand and doing drug companies and the rest of the early entrepreneurial things that folks get involved in when they are youngsters or is this something that totally came out of the blue because your parents were like working class folks that had, didn't have a thought of entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm so my parents are very, very traditional. You know, they worked in corporate America for like 30 years and they retired, you know, the very traditional track um, and did very well. And, you know, they were very academic focused in our household, which is why, you know, I went on to get my law degree. Uh, but no, they were not. I was the first one. And um, my dad will admit this. He was not that supportive of me being this entrepreneur. He just felt like it was too risky. Um, you know, I'm a single mother, had a daughter. So he just was like, why just go get a job? Like, you know, get your benefits, work there for 30 years and retire. He really wanted me to kind of follow that traditional path. And, you know, I just kind of rebelled against it. And now he's totally on board. He's like my biggest supporter. So, um, but yeah, he definitely wasn't um, feeling it in the beginning. <laughs> I will say, I will say that. He'll, he'll come on and say it too. <laughs> Understood. But it's interesting that a lot of times, um, it seems like in this modern day era, as more and more people are pivoting partially because of COVID, but I think it was happening even before COVID hit the stands and everything, we're seeing more and more people that are going that entrepreneurship route. They may call it the gig economy, they may call it whatever, but it does seem more and more people are going that route. And I know that even here on this particular network and everything, the international broadcast media, and we're in the process of changing that to pod TV and everything, but even here, on this network, there has been um, conversations with our founders about how they feel that we're using 18th century values to teach in the 21st century, that we're not teaching enough about financial Absolutely. wellness. We're not teaching enough about entrepreneurship. We're not teaching enough about things like that. And I do agree with them because I do feel that a lot of times we train people to go work in the uh, corporate world. And in some ways that's almost like going back to plantation work and it doesn't matter whether you're white, black, brown or whatever, it still has mm -hmm. that plantation kind of feel to it and everything. So do you think that entrepreneurship is seeing a rebirth in your mind? I do think we're seeing a rebirth. And I think actually access has been opened up 
um, to the people who typically didn't have access to entrepreneurship and the cost of entry has gone down in some fields. And with um, the, just, you know, the internet from the nineties and now the social media boom, there's so much access um, and availability that you have that you're able to reach people. I think that's the biggest game changer because um, let's say 30 years ago, entrepreneurship was all about brick and mortar. You know, you would start a business in your local area and that would be your business. It would be very hard to reach someone, if you're in Philly, to get a customer from California. Well, now the game has changed. I can be in Philadelphia and get a client in California. Now I have so much access to more potential customers, clients, and so does everyone else. And so now that cost of entry is going down. Um, your overhead is lower because you don't have to have a brick and mortar to have a business anymore. Um, so I really think yeah, there is definitely a rebirth. And I think it's even like younger people are getting into it. And I wish, you know, I mean, I did start my business right after college, but I wish even in college, I wish I would have started just a little bit earlier. Um, just knowing what I know now, and they don't teach you these things in school, in the traditional education system. So I do think um, the educational system needs a little bit of rebirth, right? Like you said, it's like antiquated um, theories and um academic uh, processes that are just old and they're, they're just not current with the times and education is very important, but it, that needs a rebirth as well, um, just to kind of make this all come together. Yep, I definitely agree with you. And I know one of the other things that um, Potted, which is one of the sources I've used to get uh, a number of my guests and everything, um, talks about in your bio and everything is the fact that you're an advocate and apparently are one yourself as well for that whole concept of being a single mother. So I was wondering, what are some of the things that as a single mom, you try to advocate specifically for women? Because I do have some friends of mine that are um, single mothers that are in the various ages. As a matter of fact, one of my friends, uh, Jess Everhart, is a uh, member of our leadership community here in Durham, North Carolina, and she's actually just sending her teenage son off to college. I believe he's going to college this coming fall and everything. So like I said, and I've got other friends that have got either kids or grandkids that are now off to college or some that are younger, but they've got kids like you that are in grade school and all of that. But what are some of the things that you feel that you need to advocate for those single moms when you're advocating for them? Absolutely. So sometimes single motherhood can come with a stigma and um, but there's so many different ways that someone can become a single mother. There's divorce or, you know, becoming a widow, widower. Um, so there's so many different variations of a single mother. And my goal is to really just get steer away from the negative stigma that um, us single mothers may put on ourselves or the society may attach to it and just say it is a true, truly an asset to be a single mom. There's this saying, and I won't take credit for it, that if you want something done, give it to a single mother because we, we get it done because we have to, right? We have no choice but to get it done. If we're sick, we still got to feed our kids. If we're tired, we still got to go to work. You know, we don't have a, a fallback plan. So we are really, really um, time focused. You know, we have uh, very, we're very disciplined with our time. We're able to get things done. And I think it's such a bonus to have um, any single mother on any type of team because we just come with a very wide perspective of experience and focus. And we're just able to accomplish things in a very short amount of time because I'm, in real life, that's what, what happens to us. 
No, I definitely agree with you. And another thing that I know sometimes I'm amazed by, by my single mother or friends and everything, is the fact that even though it can actually be an asset, meaning that y'all have already got a lot of knowledge, a lot of uh not both knowledge in terms of life, knowledge in terms of just wisdom and all of that. A lot of times guys, for whatever reasons, are um, intimidated by folks that are successful and also mm-hmm. single. I've had that mm-hmm. conversation with a number of my friends that are, you know, that while they are single, they are also in that dating process and everything. And they are sometimes fascinated by the fact that um, guys will definitely uh, seem like they're interested, but then will also give signs that they are intimidated by them as well. So mm-hmm. is that something that you run across? And is that how do you uh, <laughs> encourage your friends if they want to go into that? And like I said, some people are perfectly content with just being single and not even wanting the spouse level or whatever, or the significant other level. But if they decide to go into that, but they find mm-hmm. folks intimidated what is some of the advice that you give people? Because I have heard folks that are literally said that they get frustrated because they find folks that are intimidated by the fact that they are smart and intelligent women. So part of mm-hmm. it is the fact that not only they're single, but they're also very smart and intelligent. Right. So I have experienced this exact scenario in my personal life. And I think what it comes down to when we're single mothers, like we said, we have no fallback plan. It's always on us and we just have to be prepared for any and everything. And what I think the the true issue behind all of this is that we're scared to depend on someone. So it's not, I think they're threatened by the fact that we don't quote unquote need them, um, but we want them, right? And so I think it's just a matter of communicating that to whoever you're, you know, talking to is that it's not that I don't need, you know, I... I've been forced not to depend on anyone, right? Because of the right. this life that I have to live as a single mother. And so when you meet someone and you know they want to feel needed and wanted, it's very it's a very hard adjustment. It, it was hard for me um in my relationship to just kind of just relax, you know? Like we're so we're so intense, we're so like ahead, we're always like the next day ahead, we're always planning ahead, like what's going on. Um and so I think that's the issue. So I think it's you know, dating or just any type of situation where someone feels threatened because we're smart and we're just kind of, we have no choice but to be. Um, it's really because because of that. Just let us know, like, hey, relax, okay? You're, you're going to be okay. It's okay to like relax for one day and then go back to that the next. So I just think it's, it takes time. It's not something that can happen overnight. Um, but with the right person, it'll it'll all work out. No, that makes a lot of sense and everything. Um, staying on that, and then also I wanted to get to the employment situation of that as well. So it's actually a two-part question. So I'll start with the staying with that part of it and everything. I do know that sometimes on the single women track and everything, and I, like I said, I'm in my late 50s and single as well, and I've dated some folks that were single women. And I do know that sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes mm-hmm. they want you to uh, engage the family in my mind, too early. One of my favorite saying is that I have, and I've used it a couple of times, is I'm still trying to decide if I like you, much less mm-hmm. if I like the rest of the family as right. well. So like I said, I do think that sometimes folks rush into the wanting to create the instant family kind of situation. And sometimes that can be a very hard situation because in some cases it's not mm-hmm. just an instant um, like parent parental thing, but in some cases it can even be an instant grandparent kind of thing, depending on how old you are and everything in the nature of the relationship. So when you're talking to your single women, what kind of advice do you give them in that regard? Do you tell them that they should try to engage the kids early or are you like me and you're like, make sure that you get to know these folks 
first and make sure that you're even comfortable with them on both sides, both the side of the person that you're talking to, be it man or woman, or the person that is in the single category. Yeah. I always tell them to look at it from the kid's perspective. So um, because we're adults, we know that 90% of our relationships are not going to last forever. Right. So um with that, with those, and I'm, you know, I used to be into, I was a finance major in college, so math is my thing. So with that type of probability, I would not, you know, introduce the children until you feel like there may be, they may be in that 10% category. And there's no way to really tell, right? So we're not going to get it perfect every time. Um, but just know, just know the reality that it's, there's you know, it's going to likely not work out. Um, and it doesn't mean you don't have to, you know, introduce your kids to them, but maybe introduce them to them as a friend um, and sporadically, you know, not every time you're with them. You know, I think it's just really case by case. I would hate to give like a blanket opinion or advice on that. I think it's going to be case by case. I think if we know going into things that most of the people we meet, we're not going to be with um, long term and we don't want, you know, our children having people coming in and out because then that creates like abandonment issues. Um, if they get attached to someone, now they're going, now it's a new person, now they're attached to this person, now they're going. So I think you just kind of have to play it by ear. We're not perfect. And, you know, just do the best that you can. But I do agree, like, you know, I don't, I don't know about meeting the whole family early on. I think that's, um, I think that's a bit much, you know, like, because at the end of the day, you have to like the person, right? The families don't matter because they're not going to be there during the the bad times or even all the good times. So it's really about the two people, the two adults that are, you know, trying to get to know each other and then, you know, bring the kids in slowly, very, very slowly. No, that makes a lot of sense. And that comes back to what I was going to ask about employment, because I do know that before the pandemic and definitely more and more people are working from home now. But before the pandemic, there was a lot of companies, including some down here, what we call the Research Triangle area. They were very much good about providing um, care for their employees that had kids and uh, things of that nature. So whether that was a daycare on site, whether that was um, certain kinds of leaves that were given to parents and things of that nature, but there were a variety of ways that they worked into that field and everything and tried to make sure that the kids were part of the uh, employment situation for some kind of uh, ways and it, you know, it didn't discourage people from the workforce. <clears throat> is that something that you still feel is prevalent and is it something that should be prevalent? I feel like childcare is always um, that's our, that's the it's a big issue not just for single mothers it's for parents in general it's expensive right. um, that kind of would led me to be you know my be my own practitioner is that I wanted the flexibility and I hated the guilt that came with you know having to take off of work because I need to go to be there for my child and the employer not really understanding that, or they understand because they have children too, but they, they don't want to hear it because dollars, dollars are dollars. Right. And, and businesses are in business to make money and, you know, all of that stuff. And I totally get it from, you know, owning a business myself. Um, but, you know, we got to get back to just being human and, at the end of the day, that's what we all are. And these companies will continue to thrive whether you're there or not. So, um, 
At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams of 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. You know, I try not to comment on, on corporate America and employment because I have a very different perspective. You know, I didn't fall for the I had to go get a job after, you know, after college. I did get a job after college. Um, but then uh, in 2010, I went full time as an entrepreneur. So I've pretty much been an entrepreneur since 2010, minus, you know, my law school years. And it's been the best experience. Yeah, it's hard. Like I do not glorify entrepreneurship. I do. I'm sorry to kind of go off track with your question, no, but I just want to mention this. Like entrepreneurship is is wonderful. It's needed, but we also need people to work for us, right? So I think um, I don't want people to get caught up in like entrepreneurship is like the only way or to make money or the new way. Like my parents were in corporate corporate America for 30 years, did very well. Um, Live, you know, they live an amazing life now. They're retired. So it's not the only way. And it, it, you truly just have to want to do it. It's very, very hard, but very rewarding. Um, so I just, you know, when I do talk to people who are trying to get into it, I don't sell them the bells and whistles. I really say, listen, you know, what you're going to do when one month, you know, you don't make any money in your business, you know, are you going to give up? Are you going to try to pivot and figure out why? Um, and the pandemic really taught us a lesson, you know, um, some of my clients didn't, you know, didn't make money for months and didn't know what to do or should they shut down. Um, and some tough decisions had to be made. And so I think, you know, that goes back to kind of being prepared very early on in your business before um, catastrophes happen like this um, to kind of have a plan in place. So um, sorry to go off track, but I just wanted no, to. No, you're doing good, and you're actually bringing up some good points that are actually giving me some thoughts about even some of the questions and everything. One of the things that I definitely agree with you with entrepreneurship and all of that, but one of the things that I sometimes think folks are not prepared is not having a um, certain amount of money in the bank and things of that nature. And I do know mm -hmm. that a lot of times folks will be like, you know, do I need to have, um, if I'm coming out of corporate America, do I need to have, say, uh, two checks worth of uh, money or maybe even six months worth of money in the bank before I launch into this entrepreneurship venture and all of that. So what are your thoughts when you're talking to your clients? Or do you think that they need to have, um, even before the pandemic, uh, like to have maybe six months worth of money? Because I do know some mm -hmm. folks that literally, you know, they wanted to start their entrepreneurship idea while in um, while working a nine to five or while working a series mm -hmm. of part times. And in some cases they've mm -hmm. done quite well while doing that. And then they may decide, you know, look, I'm ready to go full tilt for what I yeah. want to do in terms of the entrepreneurship. But say I've only got enough and they say that we're all probably about one or two paychecks away from poverty anyway, the vast mm -hmm. majority of society. So 
what is your advice in terms of how much um, capital should they have, for lack of a better term, before right. in your mind folks should start mm -hmm. an entrepreneurship business? I am totally an advocate for having a nine to five and working on your entrepreneurship, your small business part time starting out. That's how I started my makeup business and it worked out for me. Um, I, I'm a little conservative when it comes to savings because I'm a single mother. So I don't have like a, a spouse that could kind of carry me if things get a little rough. So I had to have like about a year of savings before I felt comfortable um, doing the things that I wanted to do just because, you know, I wanted to make sure, you know, my daughter would be covered. Like I can go, I could miss a couple meals a day. Uh, my daughter, however, she she's not missing any meals. She, mom, I want breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So, you know, she doesn't want to struggle with me as an entrepreneur. So I had to just make sure that, you know, I had a year in savings. And, you know, they say six months, but I think, um, you know, the first, sometimes the first two to three years in business, you don't really make a profit, right? You know, you kind of make enough to sustain. You're spending a lot of money just getting things up and, up and running. And I think um, if you do your business plan, like you mentioned earlier in the show, you can kind of project. Now, everything doesn't go as planned, but you definitely can at a minimum project what you're going to be making, how much you're going to need to be, how much you need to be covered. And then, you know, with all of this um, entrepreneurship incubators that they have and grants, right programs, you know, a lot of corporations, they have a lot of money that they want to give away because it's a tax write-off. So I really, really encourage entrepreneurs to go after those programs. They don't get enough applicants. So there's a lot of, even if your local government, the your business chambers where you were located, they have programs, grants, there's money available to, to you if you really just take some time to go get it. And, you know, using other people's money, using a, you know, a loan or a bank isn't a bad, bad idea <laughs> at all. If you know, you know, if you're smart and you you know are serious and you're going to use the money the right way now i definitely agree with you on that i'm actually a big fan of um and riot which is one of the groups here in north carolina does it there are other groups that do them as well but i'm actually a big fan of pitch contests because i think a lot of times yeah. folks can actually pitch their ideas and get an idea of even whether the business is viable or because the judges and other folks will let you know and sometimes they'll let you know in no uncertain terms whether it's viable or mm -hmm. not so i'm definitely a big fan of those pitch contests and that's just one of the kind of funds that you're talking about that are out there and that are available what are some of the other ways that you would encourage folks to do because i do think that sometimes we get too caught up in what i call and i know what you said about your dad and everything but we do get caught up in the friend and uh friend and family plan, meaning that that's where we're trying to get our funds mm -hmm. from. And a lot of times they've got their own mm -hmm. <laughs> concerns. They've got their own issues. They've got their own things. And we can't always depend on them. It might have worked for right. Robert Townsend in his movie, but it doesn't work for everybody. Right. So I think delayed gratification <laughs> is um, kind of the name of the game in the beginning. So, it's you know, you have to cut back. So for me, out of law school, I didn't go get the, the high rise apartment for me and my daughter. We scaled down so that I could build, you know, my dream over here. And now we're, we're OK, we're fine. So, you know, it's a lot of sacrifice, a lot of delayed gratification um, and, and it's worth the reward. So I think if you go in knowing that there, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel, but just kind of dive in and do the work and 
know your numbers. At the end of the day, business is all numbers. And I think that's where a lot of people get into trouble. They don't know their numbers and they don't, they're not tracking what's coming in and what's going out. Um, they're kind of just kind of living day by day. Things are afloat, things are okay. And then something happens and they realize they have no no cash flow, no emergency fund, because they really just were kind of going day by day. And I'll admit when I had my makeup business, that's a hundred percent how I was doing it. Money with every set, you know, everybody wants their makeup done on Saturday. So Saturday, right. Friday, cash is coming in, you know, we're, we're busy, busy. Wedding season is busy. Um, money's going out and, you know, you don't really realize, okay, I don't have enough money to, you know, maybe open a new location um, that I wanted to open or, you know, really invest the money. Like once you make the money, now you have to make it, make more money instead of, you know, having to put your time in to make that money. So I really think exchanging time for money initially is okay, but eventually you want to get to a point where the money you're making is now being invested in making money somewhere else where you don't have to physically show up and be there. Um, you know, there's a lot of wear and tear on our bodies working, you know, all day every day. You say you work like six, seven days a week. That's a lot of wear and tear. So it'd be right. nice to have, you know, the money we earn now. Okay. What are we going to do with this earned money? We're going to put it in investments, whether it's real estate, the stock market, let it, you know, grow for us and, and kind of shift our mindset from just having to be like the worker in the business and becoming the more visionary operational person to help that business grow and thrive. And maybe one day you'll sell it or just retire. <laughs> yeah, because I sometimes think that we sacrifice too much as entrepreneurs, just our basic day-to-day -day, uh, necessities. And I'm very much about wellness in, in terms of like um, health, mm -hmm. in terms of uh diet in terms of a number of other things as well but sometimes we get so caught up in the entrepreneurship spirit that we let things go and all of that as a matter of fact i know that i've got and i'm about a week and a half two weeks behind um mm -hmm. a hair appointment on wednesday because i've definitely let the beard go into like that whole santa claus kind of space and everything that i don't necessarily enjoy and all of that but i do think that we sometimes get away from the things that we need to be concerned about because we're so focused on what's going on mm -hmm. on the entrepreneurship spirit and all of that. Right. So what are some of the other things that you give in terms of advice to the entrepreneurs that you talk to? Because I'm sure that there are a lot of them that are asking you for various advices and things of that nature. So what are some of the things that you encourage them to do? Do you encourage them to take some time out for their, um, not just for their family time, if they are single moms, but if they are mm -hmm. just entrepreneurs that are like maybe, maybe young men and young women that don't even have kids yet coming out of college and everything, but they want to spend time, you know, maybe going jogging, going to the gym or just, uh, well, can't really go to plays and concerts the way that we used to, but that's coming right. back now, going to things like that or going to the park. But what are some of the things that you try to encourage your entrepreneurs to do in that space of wellness? Wellness. So absolutely. If you have children, I would recommend just getting your children involved um, with you when you're exercising or taking a break. Sleep is so important. I know um, if you're like a nine to fiver and you're an entrepreneur, you, you might be sleep deprived. But to kind of be at your best performance, you need some sleep. So I would really just dedicate, you know, 
six to at least six to seven hours a night of sleep, um, being active with your children, definitely make the time out. I didn't realize that I needed rest days or um, vacation or just a break from the, you know, the feast and fab of entrepreneurship until I went to law school. So after law school, you have to study for the bar exam. It's 12 weeks of studying for the bar exam. And when you study, it's seven days a week. And they tell you only study for eight hours a day. At the end of those eight hours, do not open the book. Don't go home and go look at it and fall asleep with the book in your hand. They really say your brain can only really maximize eight hours a day. And after that, it's not really functioning at its highest self. So, um, and when you're taking studying for the bar exam, you want to give it your all. You're willing to do all-nighters. You, you think you're going to do 12 hours a day, and that's really not the best way to do it. So I stuck with that plan. I did eight hours a day of studying, and then the rest of the day, I would go to the gym. I would take a walk. I would just do some mindless activity to just kind of recharge, and that's when I realized that it's not about working 12, 16 hours a day. Yes, there's going to be some very long days in there, um, but you know when you get to a point in your entrepreneurship journey, you're going to realize that those off days or those, you know, sticking to like an eight hour day is going to be so beneficial. You'll maximize your time. Those you'll get more done in those eight hours than you were getting done in, in the 12 because you're just kind of just focused and your brain is sharp. And um, it's just so important to just, you know, be careful with your time. You don't have a lot of time here on earth. So if you can, you know, really balance it out. You don't want to just spend 10 years and you look back and all you did was work, work, work. You really got to take some time for yourself to enjoy it. No, no doubt about that. You definitely have to do that and everything. If somebody was to ask you right now where you are hoping your business and your law practice would be five to 10 years from now, where would you say that would be, even in terms of your entrepreneurship and your encouraging other entrepreneurs? Where do you hope to be um, in terms of the clients? Like I said, the network is a global network. So we have some shows in Australia and people that are from that area as well. And then we definitely have folks in South Africa and around various parts of the globe. But I was just wondering, what are mm -hmm. some of your uh, own personal goals for say five to 10 years from now. So we're in 2021, so say 2026, 2031. So here's the, the, I don't know if I ever said this publicly, but I'm a service provider. So that means if I get sick, I can't make money, right? So mm -hmm. um, I can get another lawyer to cover for me, but technically my cases are my cases. This law firm only moves if I move it. Um, and so that's a very big risk to have. Now I have insurance that can cover if things happen, so that's fine. But that's just a, a very risky business when the business solely relies on me. So I'm actually trying to shift gears where, yeah, I'll have the law practice, but I want to get into businesses that don't require my physical um, contribution for it to be successful. And um, but we need lawyers, we need doctors. And so I'm going to you know, I'm going to stay in it. Um, but I, I really want to shift into um legal education, um, legal uh, seminars. Like I really want something where um, it doesn't require me to have one-on-one -on -one clients all the time um, because it's just, a, it's just such a huge risk for me. And um, the money is in like 
perpetuity and being able to duplicate yourself and not be there. And you just can't duplicate yourself as a lawyer. You can't duplicate yourself as a doctor. So um, it's so funny because a lot of my clients, I teach my clients like, you know, the end game is to like get out, you know, <laughs> it's not to stay in it forever. And so I'm like, how do I get out of my law firm? Okay. I'm preaching this to everybody, but you you really can't, you can't get out of your, your doctor's office, right? You're the doctor, I'm the lawyer. And so um, I think what I want to do is scale down the law firm to just have a couple larger clients um, that I have. And then outside of the law firm, really build a sustainable business that doesn't require my one-on-one touch. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I actually had the pleasure, a friend of mine does a uh, Facebook Live uh, called Purpose and Power, Stephen Walker, but he had a guy on that runs a network called ATS. I think his full name is Antonio Smith, but Antonio Smith was actually a, um, and I'm trying to get him on one of the shows here on this network, but he is actually, I think Forbes is about to name him as a billionaire. I know they already have named him as a millionaire, but when he was a youngster, I think between the ages of like six and 11 or something like that, he was actually basically abandoned and homeless and living in a dumpster. So to go from dumpster to billionaire is a truly amazing story and all of that. Mm -hmm. So I know that Mm -hmm. he's actually got a goal now, which is actually a very noble goal of I think he wants to give away like 80 to 90 percent of all this money he's made and everything. So he's actually trying to create new millionaires and is actually having people give him pitches and different other things. Because, even though he's made this money, it sounds like he's got uh, this noble cause of wanting to also give the money away. But I don't know if anybody that's even attempted to do that, except for Mm. maybe one of the early Rockefellers, because I do remember hearing stories (laughs) about um, the early Rockefeller that would go around and give, um, and even he wasn't giving away like lots of money, but he was giving away, I think like, you know, maybe a hundred here or a thousand there and something like that. Um, And I remember hearing those kind of folk tales and all of that. So definitely he might be somebody that would be worth uh, connecting with and all of that. That was the reason of bringing him up and everything. So definitely I have to try to find a way to connect y'all and uh, together. And like I said, I know that they do the whole ATS thing. I think it's a call that's once, I want to say it's every day, uh, Monday through Friday. And it's like nine in the morning or something like that. So I'll get in touch with Stephen and see what he's, what the link is to that and how they're, doing that but i agree that that's just something that we need to have more of Mm -hmm. we were talking about the education system earlier and definitely i think entrepreneurship needs to be taught better and i was just wondering do you feel as a law lawyer and a former law student that we're doing well in that category also because i'm oftentimes amazed by even and i do have friends that are lawyers some of the things that they don't necessarily know including some of the uh basics and all of that so I know that it varies from state to state, country to country, mm-hmm. but do you think as an overall population that we could do better in terms of the knowledge of the law? Absolutely. Um, the problem, well, not the problem, but the legal system is very reactionary. Um, it's very mm-hmm. little, I would say it's 90% reactionary, 10% they're going to be proactive about some law, right? So something's going to happen and now they're going to put some law in a place to stop it from happening. Um, And it takes so much time to write a law, pass the law, implement the law, enforce it, you know? So it's just a very antiquated system. Um, And then, you know, as citizens, you're, if you, you break a law, you if you don't even if you don't even know it's a law that you're breaking, you're still responsible, right? So it's like they don't teach you in school 
what the rules are, what the crimes are. And for the general part, you kind of know, right? But there's some crimes out there that you may not know that you could be committing and you're guilty because not knowing is not a defense. Um, so, you know, I think it's, I don't think it's a way for everyone to know every single law out there. Even I don't, even after the bar exam, there's still so much um, that you just won't know. But um, I think it's an old system. I don't really don't, I wish I had a solution. Um, even law school is, is very antiquated. It's very, um, everything is based on precedent. It's like, well, what happened 10 years ago? Let's go back to that case. Okay, we're just going to follow what that case said 10 years ago and, and, and move on. It's, ne it's never really like um, they don't like to introduce new things. You know, judges don't like to step on another judge's decision. Um, you know, then you have like judges being appointed. So now they want to make sure they're following that agenda. In Philadelphia, judges are elected. So they want to, mm -hmm. you know, appeal to who, you know, the voters are. And they're trying to make sure they're doing what the voters want. So I just think, you know, the systems are all over the place. There's no unison, no uniform system. The states do what they want to do. The federal government um, has to be separate from the state uh, most of the time. So it's just, a, you know, there's no real nexus to any of it. And, um, you know, you can smoke marijuana in one state. You can't smoke it in another state. You can't smoke it federally at all. So, um, you know, it's it's a mess. <laughs> it, sounds um, like a mess. It, it sounds like a mess. And there's so many issues that are coming up now that are going to be needing the lawyers around the country to deal with and to try to figure out an answer because it's going to be the politicians and the lawyers that are going to have to come up with answers to things like immigration reform, uh, gun control and police reform. And I know that those are like three of the big issues that everybody's got on their mind. And of course, those all have legal uh, ramifications. And then you've got things that were on the books that are, you know, coming up around for renewal of their laws, be that uh, things that are coming up around Roe versus Wade or things that are even coming up around civil rights. So it definitely sounds like a lot of right. these are things that need the lawyers, but um, we're, we as a country are still trying to figure out where we're going on all of those five issues that I named and everything. And it just seems like the lawyers are even adding, uh, not adding to, but are just as confused as the rest of us. We're frustrated. Absolutely. Um, we're frustrated because, you know, you can go into court one day and a judge will rule this. And then a year later, you have a very similar case and a different judge will rule something totally in the opposite direction. And when that happens, it's very hard to advise clients on what to do because we have no idea what the judge is going to say this time. The, oh, I could say, oh, the judge last year said this, but think we were okay. And then we get in there and this judge is on something totally different. Um, so, you know, I have people that call me all the time. If they're not my client, like family and friends in a different state, and they're like, you know, what should I, should I get a new lawyer? A lot of times they want to blame their lawyer lawyer and I won't you know lawyers get a bad rap um and right some of them are rightfully so but I always say it's, it's really not the lawyer it's going to be the judge whatever judge you are in front of if you're in a criminal case a civil case um know that judge look at what that judge has done in the past what the other you know what the other judges have done maybe but it's really about what is this judge's um pet peeves are they picky are they lenient are they you know more against gun crimes versus you know family disputes, you know, you really just kind of have to dive into the judge. Unfortunately, it's subjective. And I feel like we need an objective system so that the human um, opinion is kind of taken out of it. Even juries, you know, juries are not perfect. Um, yeah. 
and I don't, I don't really know how we address, you know, address all these issues, but those are issues, you know, judges are human, juries are human. And, you know, we're relying on a, a human based system to be perfect. And it's just not. No, I agree with you. It's not perfect. There's got to be some kind of way that it can be. Uh, and I'm not one for like, you know, tossing the baby out with the bathwater to use that expression. But there's got to be some ways that we can adapt the system. Not saying we have to go whole hog uh, socialism or whole hog or some other kind of system. But definitely there's got to be some improvements even in our healthcare and in a number of other things as well. I know a lot of times in our society, we oftentimes hear the conversation about the talk that is had with our uh, males. I know that definitely my brother has had it to some degree. I've definitely got friends with older kids that have definitely had it, but I've never been 100% sure. So I guess I'll ask you now, do you feel that that's a talk that you had to have with your daughter? Because a lot of times we don't hear about the talk with the women as much as we do with the men, but we do know women can also run into issues with law enforcement as well. So as a single mother, is that something that you feel that you have to have with your daughter, have a conversation with her about um, what to do should she be pulled over by a police officer mm -hmm. and all of that. It is a very popular conversation. You know what? You're right. And, you know, I didn't have that specific conversation that I probably would have had if I would have had a 12-year-old boy. You know, we watched some of the George, she watched some of the George Floyd, well, excuse me, the Derek Chauvin trial um, when it was on. So she's, you know, she's aware of what happened and what went wrong and why it's wrong. Um, but we do kind of treat the girls and the boys differently. Now, I will say I am not the most friendly person that cops will pull over. Um, and my daughter's usually in the car with me if I get pulled over. I think I got pulled over for like a, a broken taillight or something. And I was just so annoyed. I'm like, really? I'm just like, we're human. You know, obviously I can't see my broken taillight because it's, it's, it's the tail. You know what I mean? And the cop just wanted to be so hardball about this taillight. And I gave him a hard time about it. And, you know, it didn't work. I got my ticket. So it didn't work well for me. But my daughter was like really upset. She's like, why do you have to be so mean to the cop? And I'm like, because laws are, um, they have discretion. They don't have to ticket you every single time. It's not, they're not required to. They can use their police discretion on, you know, what they're going to enforce and what they're not. And I feel like a taillight that I didn't even know was aware was out. And I just got my car serviced literally a week ago. I showed him the receipt. I'm like, it wasn't out when they fixed my brakes a week ago. So it must've just went out. And he still wasn't convinced. He just wanted to just give me a taillight ticket. Okay. So, you know, I think it's all about, um, it's unfortunate that I know if I was a black male in that incident, it may not have gone the way it went that, that I was a woman. I'm kind of, you know, going against this police officer that just had to give me a ticket for a taillight. Um, so yeah, I think there's some sexism there in the um, the law enforcement arena. Absolutely. That I haven't really addressed or thought to address, but it's there. Um, but it's all, I think it's always been there. I think women always get treated differently than men, whether, you know, um, whether it's the police or or something, even in the court system, you know, people complain that mothers get all these rights in the family law system and the dads get none of it. Um, so, you know, <laughs> it's it's everywhere, unfortunately. Um, yeah, because I know even one of, and unfortunately she lost her um, husband recently, uh, and like one of our founders, Kim Calhoun, for this network and everything. I know that one of the things that she oftentimes talks about is the way that um, law enforcement 
um, treats women, particularly women that are going through abusive situations and things mm -hmm. of that nature. So that's one of her uh, issues that she talks about is the way that it's oftentimes not uh, done in an effective way. She actually is a big fan of a small mm -hmm. town in North Carolina called High Point because she feels that they have actually done it right, that they separate the folks and that they actually have done it in a lot of other ways correctly. But so she is a big right. proponent of that particular town and it actually encourages people that if they have any issues in North Carolina, try to find a way to get to that town. And I don't know if this, whether that's either legal or even possible, but that's one of the mm -hmm. things that she encourages and everything. But do you feel that um, in your mind that the police do not treat women fairly enough? Because I know that, know that that's a big issue that she talks about and more of that around domestic violence and domestic abuse because she's, I don't think she was ever involved in that herself, but I do know she had a sister that has mm -hmm. been involved in that in the past. So I was just wondering, you know, and the sister is still yeah. living and everything, but I was wondering, is that an issue that you feel we need to work on improving as well? We do, because there's a stigma around women and sexuality and, you know, whether a woman says yes or no, can she say yes and then change her mind? A lot of, a lot of you know, a lot of law enforcement are men. And so if you have, if these are men enforcing, using their discretion, right? Because remember I said they have discretion. So they're yeah. using their discretion not to kind of take some of these claims seriously. Um, it's a flaw. And so, you know, I do think they need to put additional checks and balances in the system when there is a domestic violence dispute. Um, not just for the women, you know, I know some women can abuse men, so I'm not that, you know, the advocate saying only men are abusing women, um, but just the domestic system in general, 100% needs to be, needs to have reform. Um, it's, it's tough because then, you know, victims are scared to come forward. Um, when you have when you have called heat of passion crimes, when love is involved, they call them the in the heat of passion. You do something right. I don't know if you ever watched the show Snaps, where these women in the heat of passion they snap and either kill someone or they they make a really big mistake in their life. It's a real thing. Um, At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. You know, and, you know, on the flip side of it, you have women who become, you know, deceased from domestic violence where they've had made complaints after complaint after complaint. Nothing was followed up on. Nothing was ensured um, that this predator didn't come near the victim. And then they, she ends up dead months later. So it's it's a tough system. Um, I wish, you know, I wish we had the answers to it. It's just really tough when law enforcement 
is has discretion to do it. And then even the prosecutor side, because prosecutors can only go after um, a predator if, if the witness set, comes forward. There's no other evidence usually. There's usually no camera evidence. Um, it's going to be physical evidence. And then it's all he say, she say, you know, well, he did this to me and he's going to say, no, he didn't. And so now, you know, we have a case totally based on hearsay and it's very tough to prosecute or defend a case like that. Yeah, no doubt about that and everything. I know that at one point, Philadelphia definitely had kind of an activism spirit and everything. I definitely know that um, your mayor um, back in the day, some people thought he was an activist and everything. And definitely there was the whole move uh, activities that was going on up there. And some of the move people are still in prison and everything. But I was wondering, yeah. in your mind, does um, they still have that kind of activism spirit and everything? Because I do remember... Um, definitely in the 80s and 90s hearing about MOVE and hearing about the activism spirit of Philadelphia, which of course is historical because definitely being one of the, uh, you know, founding areas and everything, Ben Franklin mm -hmm. and the rest of the game were very much activists. But I was just wondering, do you feel that that activism spirit, particularly in the African-American community, is still there or has it uh, gone dormant to some degree? I think there's activism, but there's also... Um, a very big disconnect between law enforcement and African-American community. And it, it's not funny you said that, but um, where the MOVE bombing happened, for those of you who aren't, who aren't familiar in Philadelphia, there was this organization called MOVE back in the, the 80s or 90s. Um, the Philadelphia police, government, whoever they were, they bombed um, the houses of these moves for um, organizers and children died, um, adults died and um, for a while, that street was just demolished. Um, but recently, there are brand new, um, uh, expensive homes that have been developed on this land. And it's caused a lot of, con not controversy, but just a lot of questions um, about how the city kind of handled the MOVE um, organization and how they still handle it. Um, they, they're still trying to free, uh, I can't think of his name, but he was one of the MOVE organizers and is in prison for allegedly I mean, killing a police officer. Um, but but they, uh, I won't say Jabbar is the last name, but I know exactly right. what you're talking about. Um, so yes, they're always they're definitely still advocating for him, and they're definitely disappointed that this new development of um, expensive housing in that community has you know has come out of this um, situation. And then even recently, I read an article I want to say last week where the University of Pennsylvania used some of the remains of the move um, organizers that died in that fire, they were using it in the, their education and um, using it to teach their students. And they just found this out and they have now decided that they will return the remains to the family members. Um, but yeah, very big conspiracy, very, we still don't have answers in Philadelphia. And I don't know if you, you know, Philadelphia is very violent right now. We're having a crisis. Um, the crime rates are up. There's, we have, I think we have the highest murder rate um, over the past five years. Um, ever since the pandemic, the, the crime has just been really, really high. And so it's unfortunate that that's what's happening here. Um, but yeah, there's definitely some angry, and some people feel rightfully so angry energy from the community, the African American community, um, towards the, the government officials and the law enforcement officials. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, mm -hmm. One of the other things that I know is very popular, and in terms of conversation, 
is the whole concept of gentrification. I do know you kind of alluded to it with these new houses and everything, but yeah. is that something that you feel the community is also very much concerned about as well? Because definitely I know that even here in Durham, North Carolina, we've had uh, apartments and uh, different kinds of apart um, housing that have gone up in the downtown area that aren't exactly cheap. I mean, even our cheaper um Apartments aren't all that cheap, but they're cheap compared to Philly and New York. I mean, like you can get something down here for like maybe seven, eight hundred, and then there might be stuff that's in that fifteen hundred to two thousand dollar range, and all okay. of that. But some of that is in that gentrification area, and I do know that in places like New York and Philly, some of those apartments might be going for like two thousand to four thousand. So right. I'm just wondering your thoughts about um, gentrification, and also if it's still an issue there in Philly as much as I felt it was, say, ten or fifteen years ago. Yeah, I think it's even more of an issue now. Um, gentrification is booming in Philly. You know, I was in the looking for an investment property um, early this year, and I was in the process of trying to decide, do I want to do gentrification that route, or do I want to just provide quality housing um, in a decent area? And I went with plan B. You know, I um, I couldn't bring myself to 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 like the gentrification route where I buy a house in, you know, up a coming neighborhood and, you know, sell it to someone who typically would never be in this neighborhood um, 10 years ago. Right. Uh, it just didn't, it doesn't feel right. When, when I walk through the gentrified areas in Philly, you know, I went to high school in South Philly so, and South Philly is not like the, it wasn't back then. It wasn't the place to be, you know, you go to school, you go home. Um, now it's, you know, there's million dollar homes across the street from my high school. And, and I think it's, um, I don't know, it kind of makes me sad. And then when I was doing my research um, on the properties I wanted to buy on a certain street, I realized in South Philly, 80% of the houses are owned by LLCs or like out of state investors. So the people that are investing on the street never lived here don't ever plan to live here, probably never actually seen the actual house. Um, but they're taking these houses from people and they don't even live in the community. They don't even care about what's going on in the community. They just want to make money off of that community. Um, so I think it's very, very sad. I wish there was something in place that could protect, you know, the integrity of the neighborhoods where maybe at least 50% have to be resident occupied, you know, versus where 80% of the block is owned by LLCs in New York. Um, and then I would have been the only like person, you know, the local landlord on that block. Um, so I didn't go that route. I actually um, bought a duplex in a, a, a more stable neighborhood that's not being gentrified, um, but was safe. Because my whole idea is that like, I want to provide housing for hopefully single mothers. Um, I don't discriminate, but if I, you know, I would 100% um, offer, you know, housing to a single mother who might be denied housing somewhere else. No, that makes a lot of sense. I know that definitely um, one of the other things that I'm a big proponent of, and when he was at the Clippers, he definitely was very active in making his uh, thoughts uh, put out there and everything is um, activists that are also in the, the athletic space. And um, I actually went to school way back in the 80s with Doc Rivers, who is the current coach of the uh, 76ers and everything. But mm -hmm. I just wonder your thoughts about folks that use their platform, be they entertainers, be they lawyers, be they uh, folks in the athletic field in order mm -hmm. to speak out on issues. Because like I said, I know definitely Doc came out on a couple of issues as Dev, a couple of other players. I think Ben Simmons even came out on some issues as well. But I just wonder your thoughts about athletes, coaches, and entertainers, and I would even argue lawyers and doctors uh, right. using their platform in order to speak on issues. What are your thoughts on that? 
Right. I like the quote, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. So I, I truly believe that, you know, people should have a be allowed to have an opinion, even if it's if it's not the majority opinion on an issue um, for people who have larger platforms like athletes and celebrities. That's a slippery slope, you know, because their their business is them, right? So their opinions can affect their their business after all. So it's sometimes that's more of a business decision that they have to make than it is a personal one. But I think they should, you know, strategically decide which issues they're going to voice their opinion on. And then there may be some they shouldn't, um, just simply because it's, it's a business at the end of the day. And they want to kind of protect the the brand of what they're developing. But I totally agree that um, they should use their path platform to what they believe in. Um, and then on the flip side, just kind of pick and choose which battles you're going to, you know, fight. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and everything. And along those same lines, I'm assuming that as a longtime Philly person that you are a 76ers fan and not a Knicks fan. But I could be wrong because I do know that folks will call. I'm a football girl, so I'm an Eagles fan. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely, definitely an Eagles fan, but we'll root for the uh, 76ers and possibly whatever that hockey team is that also does well. That I know is also up there. The Flyers, I the think Flyers. it is. Mm-hmm. Right. The Flyers. Yep. And then I uh, don't think Philadelphia has a baseball team. I know Pittsburgh does. That's right. The Phillies. What am I thinking about? The one with that mascot <laughs> and everything. I should remember that mascot. What was I yep. thinking about in that regard? But you're saying <laughs> that in terms of your sports, you're more of a – football person, not so much basketball, baseball, hockey, or whatever else is out of that fourth kind of category. And I I will not hold it against you probably that uh, one of your teams that is in there in that Philly area also goes against my alma mater, which is also Doc Rivers' alma mater as well, because Marquette does have to go up there and play Villanova and a couple of those other schools that are, I know, based there in Philadelphia that are part of the Big East. Okay. So we will not hold that against you and everything. (laughs) What are some of the other things when you talk to entrepreneurs that shock you that they don't know? Because I'm oftentimes shocked at the things, and we've talked about some of them, that entrepreneurs don't know that I feel they should know. But what are some of the things personally that you are, when you're talking to your entrepreneurs, you really wish that they knew more about? Sure. What don't they know? Um... I do a lot in the intellectual property trademark space. So I'm going to say they're like me when I started out. I thought having a business, an LLC, I thought that name, once I created it, I thought it was mine. Um, And that's not true because you can start an LLC in Pennsylvania called, it's called a Big Mama LLC here in Pennsylvania. Well, there could already be a Big Mama LLC in New Jersey, and that's totally legal because the states are independent of each other. So New Jersey is not going to check to see if there's some in Pennsylvania with this business name. So you're finding your state, but what happens is when you're ready to expand your business, like what happened with me, um, I found out Big Mama was already used in these other states, and now I can't do anything nationally, right? I can't franchise it. I can't, you know, build a location in that other state because there's someone else in that state already using the name. And so I think when you're coming up with a business name, if especially when in a type of business where it can go beyond your local footprint and you do want to expand nationally or even virtually, because now, you know, in the virtual space, you have access to not just the U.S., but almost the whole entire world. Yeah. So you really have to 
um, come up with a name that is unique enough that it hasn't been used. And people think, you know, it's 2021. So every name that could have been thought of has probably even thought of. And sometimes, yes. Um, but, you know, there's some tricks and tools to the trade that I, you know, advise my clients on where we do come up with names that are unique enough where they can get their, their trademark and they are the only one in the U.S. that has this name. That's the, the big key there. How important do you think it is for a business to be um, trademarked in their individual states just in general? Because I know a lot of people that have businesses, particularly in the, um, I'd say in the beauty field, in the entertainment field, in the music field, and a number of other fields. But basically, it's um, they're the ones that came up with the name. They may have a business card in that name. They may have a number of other things in that name, but they haven't necessarily registered it with the state. So they are technically... Mm -hmm. Uh, not necessarily a legal business in that state. And a lot of folks I know definitely on the college level do that on a regular basis. So mm -hmm. I just wonder how important do you think it is to actually go ahead and spend that money? And I know that it's not always cheap in order mm -hmm. to have your name registered in your uh, secretary by your secretary of state and um, some of the other departments that handle that. Right. So tax evasion is real. And um, even though the IRS is slow, they're very sharp. So I would, you know, if you're making money, I always try to tell people to report it. Um, but, you know, you can also start a business as a sole proprietor, which basically means, you know, I'm Asia and I do makeup and my name is Makeup by Asia. And I can start doing business like that. And then on my taxes, um, I would file a Schedule C that it says, you know, I'm a sole proprietor under my social security number. I don't have an EIN or LLC. I'm just a sole proprietor that does makeup. I made 40000 doing makeup and I'm reporting it on my taxes. And that's really, you know, at a minimum what you should be doing if you don't have an entity like an LLC, a corporation or a partnership. Um, just go ahead and file, you know, declare yourself a sole proprietor under your personal social security number and just, you know, disclose to the IRS how much money you make and actually get tax benefits um, for doing that. So for those people who are doing it kind of like under the table, I get it. But if you're paying taxes and you're doing something under the table, put that under the table money on your taxes because it's, it's going to um, reduce some of your tax liability, especially if you're like a W-2 employee at the same time. Um, w-2 employees get taxed, I won't say higher, because there's a lot of variables there, but you can offset the taxes you owe on your W-2 if you write off things as an entrepreneur, either a sole proprietor, LLC, or so forth. Yeah, because I know a lot of folks, and I mentioned that at the beginning, were doing that whole gig economy kind of stuff. And I think technically speaking, all of that's supposed to you know, come from the corporate side of, say, a DoorDash or a... Um, what does my friend drive Lyft or uh -huh. Grubhub or Uber and all of that. But sometimes some of them feel like doing it, you know, on their own side as well. So what is your advice on that? Cause I do know that a lot of times I was always under the impression that even though they get frustrated with it. And I think that's why some of them decided to do it on their own, that mm -hmm. it's supposed to be done by those gig economy businesses. Be like I said, be that. Uber that the, are you saying that the corporations aren't taking the taxes out? Right. Okay. Switching to Geico is a good idea, especially when you consider everything. First off, Geico makes it easy to switch. They have licensed agents available 24-7 online or over the phone. But if it's so easy, you might start thinking everything is easy, even big wave surfing. And it's not. It's actually quite difficult. 
Well, if you switch to GEICO, you could save hundreds on car insurance. And you could keep saving by bundling your motorcycle, boat, and RV, plus your home or renter's insurance. But saving money might lead you to make some questionable purchases, like a 20-foot feather boa. And do you know how hard it is to clean a 20-foot feather boa? Well, they do have an industry-leading mobile app you can use to pay your bill, file and manage a claim, or add a new driver. But when life gets a little easier, it makes you too confident. And you start calling everyone ace. And you're better than that. Well, GEICO has a 97% customer satisfaction rating and has been saving people money for 85 years. It's hard to beat that. But you're right. Switch to GEICO. It's obviously a good idea. Yeah, so because they're, they're probably declaring you a 1099 contractor and you're not, not technically an employee. So an employee gets taxed different from a contractor. A contractor is basically you work for yourself, they're paying you, and then you're responsible for your own taxes. And if you don't file them, th- that corporation has the duty to let the IRS know, hey, I gave Asia you know, $10,000 this year to drive Uber. Um, and they, they have to report to the IRS. So now the IRS is going to wait for Asia to report that 10000 And if Asia doesn't, then comes your audit You know, a few years later. Hey, what happened to that 10000 you got from Uber? Why wasn't it on your tax return? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm oftentimes fascinated. And you're right. I mean, we got that extension. So this is the month of a tax return that usually would have been in April. But a lot of folks... Um, feel that they are going underneath the radar. So they don't necessarily file. I think that they say that, you know, the amount of defaults on um, taxes is ridiculously high. But I do know that at some point, folks are going to catch up on that and everything. It's kind of like apartment forgiveness and court forgiveness on some of the things that have been going on with apartments and housing. But as I've been telling folks, that sounds good in theory. That sounds good in theory, but but we've been in the middle of a pandemic for a year. So assuming that you have not at least been paying down on some of what you owe, you might be in for a sudden shock as we're now coming out of the pandemic. If your landlord comes at you and is basically like, let's say if we use New York prices, 2000 times 12. So you now owe $24,000 and right. you're going to be sitting there like, I don't make that kind of money and mm-hmm. your landlord's not going to care. They're going to be like, well, you either need to find it or you need to find a way to find it or find another place to live. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I would be very careful. I'm a landlord and, but I have a heart, so I get it. It's it's tough times right now. Um, But there are some people unfortunately taking advantage of the system. They're just not paying because they don't quote unquote have to, but all of that becomes due as soon as they lift this restriction. So yeah, it's been a year. You're going to owe that 24,000 or you're going to have to move. Then you're going to have a judgment on your credit report. Um, and then if they enforce the judgment, now they're garnishing your wages. You just don't don't want to do that if you don't if you don't have to. So start talking to your landlords now if you're going to run into that issue and start negotiating a way out. Um, I think it's the best way to go. Just just avoiding it or playing that game is is a risky game to play. Um, so I would just recommend you know start working on your strategy of your exit plan because it's going to come, and um, you know. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. From a legal standpoint, what do you think to folks that are thinking about like their credit reports and thinking, well, I don't really need to worry about that, or they've got bad credit or bad credit reports, and therefore they are like pretty much giving up on not ever having a good credit report. So from a legal standpoint, how important do you think it is to have those good credit reports? And what are some of the legal ways that folks can go about 
improving their credit reports because i do know a lot of times that is a major issue not just for young folks in their 20s and 30s but i would even argue some folks in their 50s 60s and 70s so i'm gonna do a, a plug here because i'm a volunteer for a nonprofit. I'm called the Bankruptcy Assistance Project in Philadelphia, where um, they help low-income individuals file bankruptcy to get a new financial start. And you get a free a free attorney. I'm one of them that you um, have assigned to your bankruptcy case to basically represent you in bankruptcy court. And um, it's my feel-good work. I love what I do there. It's totally different from my business practice. Um, but I got into bankruptcy just for that reason. I think um, as as a person of color and, you know, having friends and colleagues and clients that are people of color, um, the financial system is, is, is predatory, it's discriminatory. And um, I truly believe the bankrupt, I truly believe in the bankruptcy system to kind of help people get a first start. It's not for everybody. And I know bankruptcy gets a bad rap, right? People think, you file bankruptcy, oh, you're broke. No, it's, you're not. Um, it just means your your debts are too high for the current income that you're bringing in. So we want to kind of get rid of that debt. And, you know, when you get a credit card, for instance, you might have had a job and you thought you could pay it off. And then now you don't have a job and now you cannot pay it off. Circumstances change. And so a lot of times medical bills put people into bankruptcy, um, divorces, put people in the things that you just don't expect happen and cause people to have financial issues, credit issues. And so I do think bankruptcy is so it's one of the laws. Now I always say the legal field is reactionary and it, it did create bankruptcy in, in reaction to some um, depression that we had. But um Bankruptcy is one of the laws that is here to help us, I feel like, versus like not helping us. Like bankruptcy is the only law that says, hey, you can borrow all this money and then don't have to pay it back. Um, and that's very rare that the government is allowing you not to pay back money. Usually they want everyone to get their, their money back. So as long as you're not, you know, fraudulently getting money. But yeah, if you if you're human, you take out debt and you for something happens, you cannot pay it back and now your credit is shot. Um really consider bankruptcy. It really is a great tool. I've had clients who um, we've gotten rid of student loans. We've gotten rid of like almost everything that they owe. And then two years later, one of my clients bought a house. And so a lot of people think that if they file bankruptcy, it ruins their credit forever. They can't get a home. And that's completely um, inaccurate. You definitely can start over and, and get to the other side of things financially. So for those people who are have bad credit, um, I would just, you know, just work on saving, work on getting, I'm not a credit repair person, so I'm sure they have, you know, all these kind of new strategies they do to get your credit score up. But um, if you're truly in the red and you're under the weeds, um, consider looking in your local area if there's a nonprofit that does um, free bankruptcies for you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and definitely some good advice there and everything and definitely even the ways that you were talking about um a lot of times folks that are and i've had friends that have gone through divorce they feel that the divorce is kind of what has driven them through bankruptcy and everything and that actually had me thinking as i was talking earlier at the beginning about mm -hmm. the horse race and everything because i did watch that the uh, kentucky derby and that was actually yeah. a basically a divorce clearance sale the horse that won and everything because as i understand the story the original price for, sold for that winning horse i think that the people that bought it now um bought it for like thirty thousand, which is still cheap in horse prices but the original okay. price of the original horse sale was a thousand dollars so and it was a woman that was getting divorced and they were basically selling everything on their farm because they lived in a mm -hmm. rural area 
and all of that. So I'm sure that she's probably kicking herself right now, going like, I cannot believe that after I divorced <laughs> the man and decided to sell everything, I told right. that horse. And I think that they only got one bid. I think that they said they only got one bid, and that one bid then sold it to the people that ran the horse and won the Kentucky Derby for probably like millions, if not mm -hmm. more than that kind of money and everything. But it was sold originally for a thousand. So like I said, I'm sure she is probably somewhere kicking herself left and right going like that. Right. If I had known this, I would have been making a lot more money. <laughs> was that the, was the horse Medina spirit? I saw one of the races. Yeah, Medina spirit. Okay. But we, yeah, I just the only I saw the very end of it when when that horse won. So okay, yeah, I was at a, a, a where we at dinner. Yeah, I think about dinner. So okay, yeah, I've always wanted to go to the Kentucky Derby. I haven't made it there yet. Maybe I'll make it there one of these days. <laughs> it's apparently on a lot of people's wish list because it's on mine. I, I was having a conversation with somebody else, a friend of mine that works in media and uh, actually does our. Um, picking up our lottery numbers and everything, and it's on their wish list, and it's been on my wish list ever since there was a popular book called Fear and Lothan, and it was like a whole series of books that Hunter S. Thompson wrote, and one of those was Fear and Lothan at the Kentucky Derby. He also did Fear and Lothan at Las Vegas, but ever since that book, okay. I've always said that I wanted to go, so it's on my wish list as well. So maybe 2022 or 2023 for all three of us and we can make it to that particular event and everything because it's definitely there on my wish list as well. So just to have that positive thoughts that it can happen in the next year and all of that. Um, right. Are things opening up in Philadelphia? Like I mentioned here, our restaurants are open up here in North Carolina. They've been opening up, but definitely more and more people are you know sitting down eating and everything. And I want to say the capacity has been increased. Um, we just did an event for the minor league baseball team. And that was at a, uh, I want to say much smaller capacity than usual, but there were people allowed in and all of that. But um, how are things going in Philadelphia in terms of, are you seeing more opening up society? I am seeing more opening up of society. I haven't fully given into the opening up yet. So um, I do believe they're allowing a little bit more in numbers for gatherings and like weddings. I think the at first it was 50. I think they might have increased it recently. Um, and of course, there's still social distancing. distancing. But, I, you know, I went to the mall the other day and there's really no true way to social distance in a public space. Right. You're you're going to walk by someone. So there's no six feet in between the past. Right. But you want to say six feet apart, you know, vertically. I, you know. I'm not a scientist. I don't know how the airborne stuff works, but I'm I'm a little weary of this whole uh, you know social distance because that we're not really distancing. But well, to be perfectly honest, I'm still a little bit leery of even the vaccine process and all of that. Definitely think that uh, herd immunity is real and that we need to get it and need to get more and more people getting it. But at the same time, I just recently was checking a Facebook post that I recently got it. I'm oftentimes checking my Facebook post of friends and everything. And a um, one of my friends, and I've got hundreds, if not thousands on Facebook and LinkedIn, but one of them had actually had both doses and they mm -hmm. just recently came down along with their kid, a case of COVID. So like I said, they are recovering okay. from it, but they still got the COVID despite the fact mm -hmm. that they had not one, but both of the vaccines. So like right. I said, things, things like that kind of leave you <laughs> a little bit scary and a little bit leery. And I know that they're are different strains that are out there. We've seen what's happening in mm -hmm. India and all of that. So definitely, um, even though it seems like we're over the hump, I'm not 100% convinced that uh, there's not like some uh, 
that other shoe that's about to drop as well. So until I've got total (laughs) convincing of that and until I see some, and I'm not a mathematician or a statistician either, but until I see at least some people that are in that field that are giving me some figures that make me feel a little bit more comfortable, um, Mm -hmm. I'm definitely for, you know, the social distancing. I still wear the mask, even though they said we don't have to when we go um, outside as much, but I still do just for my own protection and everything. So I'm still for the mask, the washing of the hands and the social mm-hmm. distancing and whatever else the CDC had originally um, right. put out for us to do. And, um, you know, until I hear some better statistics and until the figures continue going down consistently, I'm still a little bit leery. I don't know about you. Right. Well, you know, my sister is a doctor, so I have a huge respect for the medical community. Um, I was not good in science. I don't understand it. It's not my specialty, but I, I respect it. And I do appreciate their quick response and their research and their development. Um, it's a early, we're in the early stages of that vaccine. There's going to be, you know, things that didn't come up in their their controlled research room uh, that they may not have expected. And so I'm just doing the waiting game. I'm just going to wait and see how it goes. And then, um, you know, I probably would consider it in the future. Um, but I, I do, I do want to, you know, the medical community is um, a tough, it's tough for me because I don't understand science. <laughs> so um, I just respect it. And I hope that they get the vaccines all straightened out. And I know, like you said, there's different strands of COVID. It's kind of like the flu, you know, uh, we still have to get flu shots every year. So there's no true cure, right, to, to this airborne um, virus. So, you know, I think we just got to take it day by day. And those who want to take it, please take it so we can kind of see what happens. <laughs> no, <laughs> I agree get with you all, on all that. The data. I want them to gather all the data and then, you know, show me all the data and then, you know, I'll go from there. No, I agree with you. Show the data, make sure that it's going to be safe and all of that, because I definitely want it to be safe. And I can relate to having something that is your Achilles heel. Um, I did not do that bad in science, even though that wasn't my strong suit. It definitely did well in English and things of that nature. My Achilles heel was actually foreign language, because foreign language kicked my backside, still kicks my backside to this day and everything. So although I may have some friends from different cultures and definitely enjoy talking to them. I know that both French and Spanish, which is kind of the go-tos when you were in grade school back in the day, they both kicked my backside. So I can relate to having something that is your Achilles heel in academics. So that was mine and probably still is. Yep, science is mine, you know, I get it honestly. (laughs) You get it honestly. Um, You said your sister was a, doctor and uh, of course you did the lawyer field and your parents were corporate and everything were they surprised as much as you said they were with your entrepreneurship and lawyers as they were with your doctor going into medicine or did they encourage her to go into medicine because it sounds like they were definitely trying to make sure that your um we did it again verizon was just named america's most reliable network by root metrics for the 16th time in a row Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. 
Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. And I don't know if that's your only sibling, but it sounds like the two of y'all were encouraged at a very young age to achieve and to succeed. Right. We were definitely encouraged to achieve. Um, that was like their only requirement as kids. Do good in school. Nothing else really mattered. Um, but, you know, she her under my sister's undergrad was in finance and she was working at a accounting firm doing very well. Then she wanted to go to medical school. Well, medical school, you have to have science courses from undergrad. She didn't have any of that. She had all business courses. So my parents were like, you know, you're going to have to go back to get all these science courses and then take the MCAT. And they um they supported it, but they were just surprised that she was willing to go back to school to get the courses she needed then to apply. So she had a, a delayed start because of that. Uh, but no, they, they were 100% behind her. Um, being a doctor, I feel it's much harder than being a lawyer. Um, they take a lot of board exams. You know, I had that one bar exam. Um, she had a lot of board exams to take throughout her medical career. So that's why I have so much respect for all the doctors out there. I can definitely understand that and everything. And it sounds like, um, so were you the only one that, because I know that was something that was, became an issue with my family and everything, because like I told you, I don't have any kids. My brother finally had the two and everything. So that gave my my parents, the grandkids, that they probably wanted to some degree or another, even though I do remember my dad saying that if it, whoever had the grandkids, he was going to use that as a way to get revenge on us for anything that we might have done bad to him in life. You know, my brother was more of the wild card in that kind of sense and everything. So do they enjoy being grandparents? And is your daughter the only grandkid or do they have other grandkids as well? Oh, no, so I also have a brother who's about, don't quote me on this, maybe 11 years older than me. And um, he has four children. I have one. And then my sister has twin, twin boys. So, they've so got my, of my parents have uh, seven grandkids <laughs> between the three of us. So they're doing pretty good in that grandkid category. They're sitting there going like, nope, don't need any more of those. We got seven. That's more than enough <laughs> at a family out in and all more of that. The barrier, so who who knows? <laughs> They're like, yeah, whatever comes our way, we would just go with it and all of They'll that. They'll go with it. Absolutely. Kids are fun. You know, um, I like kids. I think they bring hope to this world of like madness. That's when you're an adult, you get kind of caught up in the adult things of life. And, you know, kids kind of just bring that fresh perspective um, that we may not have been like my, my daughter every week is something new with her. I'm like, what are you talking about? What is this? <laughs> you know, like when I was your age, we didn't have these things. So, well, you know. it's interesting <laughs> you say that because that actually brings up something that I brought up on this show as well as some of the other shows here on this network a few times, which is that one of my best friends, um, Zach, who does a show and is very much into funk music. He's originally from, uh, I think, New York City area and everything, but he's been down here with his um, now uh, separated wife and uh, they, they had two kids as well. And he may have had some other kids from a previous relationship. Matter of fact, I know he had other kids from a previous relationship, but that being said, oftentimes when we're talking and he does a couple of funk shows, one on his own network and one on this network. But when we're talking 
Um, and we've also got friends with kids as well that are in that teen years. We're actually, and even the millennials, like those in their 20s, and I guess even some in their early 30s, but definitely between the teens to the late 20s, we're actually finding a lot of that community is very much activist oriented. So they are definitely some, one of the most activist oriented and most tolerant generations that I have seen. And I say that as a positive. I see that as a positive. But I was wondering, mm -hmm. do you see that with your daughter's friends? Because I'm seeing that a lot of these kids do not really care about, um, I mean, they're proud of their race, whatever their race is, but they don't care about racial differences. They really don't care about um, sexual orientation differences, and they really mm -hmm. don't care about a lot of other things, but they are very much, you know, adamant about the environment, adamant about climate change, adamant about um, a lot of positive issues. And it seems like they are probably... I guess I might argue maybe the 60s, which would have been my parents' um, generation and everything was the last generation that I've seen that had this kind of attitude. And I would even argue that it's even more tolerant than they were. And they were considered one of the most tolerant. But I was just wondering your thoughts when you talk to your daughter and your daughter's mm -hmm. friends. Would you agree that there is a lot more tolerance of these folks that are, say, between preteens to uh, late 20s? I agree. Well, you know, I can only speak to like my daughter. Um, she's yeah. 12. I'll be 13. She's in seventh grade. And she she loves to say she doesn't see color. Everyone's the same. She's kind of oblivious to some of these racial issues that still are prevalent today. And I try to raise her to treat everyone the same. And that's what she does. So she doesn't quite she doesn't get it. She doesn't you know, she doesn't want to believe that people of color um, or any kind of ethnic background have get treated differently because she just doesn't believe, you know, she doesn't understand it. So yes, they are, they're tolerant because they don't want to believe it. Um, because you know, her friends are all different colors. And so why wouldn't somebody like somebody because of their skin? You know, they, um, it's unfortunate, especially kind of where I've been raising her. Now, I grew up in the inner city of Philly. Um, I went to public school all the way through and was very aware of just, you know, how black people are treated. Um, just walking down the street um, in the city of Philadelphia back in the, what was that, the 90s uh, when I was in school. So, yeah, these kids these days, they're, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say they're oblivious. I think they just don't want to accept it. Um, and rightfully so. It's 2021. Why should they have to accept that people are still being treated differently? Why can't we all just love each other and just all be friends? Um, that's kind of you know where we all want to end up. And so hopefully, um, I think you know in a few years, I think maybe more active and outspoken about things that are wrong. Um, but when it's not directly in your face, it's hard to identify with it. And it's like, do I, well, do I go put her in a situation where it's in her face so she can realize it? Or, you know, I just have to kind of teach her as things come up in the news um, and kind of show her like the life you live isn't the life that everybody lives. And you need to be aware of these things because this world is not perfect. You may be put in a situation that is not fair and you need to know how to respond. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> Another thing that I remember that used to go on and this is more like in the 80s and maybe a little bit in the 70s, but definitely I would argue some in the 90s as well, with a lot of folks that were from urban areas, be that Philadelphia, New York, or whatever, they would have family. They may not have come down and visit all that often, but they would have family that was in the South as well. So there was like a, a, almost like a summer ritual if you would see a lot of your New York and 
northern relatives that would come down during the, the summer and all of that. So I was just wondering, is that something that you still feel is out there? And is there a lot of connections, say, between your um, your parents, family? And I don't know if they've got any southern roots or not, but I do know a lot of folks that did have southern roots and they would all the time, you know, mm-hmm. try to connect the families during like the summer months. Because, of course, during the school years, you're in that urban environment, but you would come down doing like the summer and definitely around the Christmas and um, Thanksgiving holidays. Absolutely. Absolutely. So So, I'm one of those kids. So I was born in Texas and then we moved to Philly when I was five. So I, and all I can remember as a child is Philadelphia. Um, So my dad's family is in Houston, Texas. So every summer when I was a child, I was in Houston and, um, like my great great grandfather had all this land, had a farm, and we would we would hang out on the farm um, in the hot heat in Houston. You know, we're from Philly, so Philly, you know, it's colder up in Philly. It's the north; things are fast and very very different down in Houston on the farm. Um, so yeah, I did that every summer, and my daughter actually goes to Texas every summer with my parents. They live in Dallas now. Um, she's been doing that since she was one years old. So it's just a tradition in our family. All the our kids go down to Texas for the summer and hang out with the grandparents. So yeah, it's still it's still relevant in my my life. Um, so I'm sure other people are still, um, you know, using that tradition. And I actually enjoyed it as a child, um, getting to see my cousins because all my cousins were in Texas during the year. I didn't see them, so just hanging out with cousins, kind of just being free, running around on the grass, you know. Kids don't get to do that anymore. Now we're all on iPhones and iPads and whatever, you know, Roblox, right? No one's out, you know, on the field for eight hours getting bit by mosquitoes all day. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't do that at all. How do you try to <laughs> encourage your daughter to actually do that? Because I agree that a lot of times, you know, like I mentioned, my nephew is totally into Roblox. And definitely I know my brother's got them, you know, running the soccer field and doing other things that are outside. And definitely my dad encourages them to get outside as well. But I do know that there are some kids out there that are so attached to their social media, sometimes even to the detriment of their health. Cause I know there was even some things that I think Instagram is about to do mm-hmm. to kind of like discourage people from doing the whole likes and things of that nature. Cause I was actually watching a film that may be part of a film festival. I'm judging that film festival, one of several, but several judges that is. And I know this film was talking about what we were just talking about that generation and everything in their positive nature, but one of the negatives was the fact that they oftentimes are so attached to social media and so influenced by whether people like them or don't like them and everything because of, you know, that whole swipe right, swipe left and likes mm-hmm. and all of that. So how do you discourage your daughter from getting caught up in that? Because apparently that's impacting some of our young people's mental health. So while we might be praising them for some of the positive things they're doing, there are mm-hmm. some things that are going on that are impacting them mentally and everything. So I just wondering how, how are some of the ways that you encourage not just yourself, but some of your parents that you advocate for to not get caught up in that? Right. So my daughter would tell you, she thinks I'm super strict. I, I, I'm the strictest mom of all her friends. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't care. I'll just be the strictest mom because there's predators on the internet. There's predators on these games. They hide behind children profiles and they're adults. And so I'm very hands-on, you know, I am attached to some of most of her social media accounts. I manage, I monitor daily. Um, I'm, I'm on her iPad looking at her history I'm very, you know, there's nothing she really, she can't really get past me. 
Um, she hates it, but she'll thank me later in life. My parents were that way with me as well. Um, they were very strict. We weren't allowed to do a lot of things and I think we turned out okay. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping the same thing for my child. So, you know, I think every parent is different. Every child is different. Um, so I, and I don't like to give parenting advice because I'm not a know-it-all, you know, I'm just going day by day like every other parent out there. But right. I think uh, it's important to stay involved in their lives, ask them questions, make sure they're aware that there are predators. There are people that pretend to be children on these games that are not children, you know, have the safe talk, don't give out your address, um, you know, all of that stuff. So I think just keep that communication open do pop-up checks. I do pop-ups on her all the time. And, you know, that's kind of how we kind of manage it. And, you know, I thought about like not letting her have anything at all, um, but that doesn't do anything, right? Because now she's deprived of something. Now she's going to try to find a way to do it behind my back, right? So she's going to, you know, kids are crafty. I was a kid at once. So instead of, you know, being, you know, as strict as she thinks I could be, um, I try to give her a little bit of freedom, but she also knows like I don't play. Um, I'm going to be checking everything. <laughs> no, you have to check everything. I remember that because they are folks that run those games, even to adults. Because like I said, I've definitely um, had some conversations, including, uh, but I'm one of those inquisitive people that's always inquisitive about life in general. So I remember talking to somebody and then I talked them into uh, letting me uh, call them or them call me. And I'm sitting there going like, well, if you're supposed to be a young female, how come you sound like a Nigerian dude? Right. Oh, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. No. I'm sorry. I was like, like I wasn't supposed to know the difference when I'm hearing the conversation. I'm like, nope. No, that that's not a uh, American accent. Definitely from what sounds like an African country. And I definitely know the difference between a male and a female voice. So, like right. I said, nice try. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Nice try. <laughs> Well, this was but a good yes, conversation. I really enjoyed. Um, cool. And I know we got to get ready to wrap up, but I'm actually getting to wrap it up anyway. But one thing that I was going to ask you, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it as well, is how important, and then there's just a couple of very quick questions, but how important do you feel faith is to you? Because that's something that I know that a lot of people are very much involved with. And when I say faith, I don't mean just the physical walls of the church. Because to me, I consider myself more of a spiritual person than necessarily mm -hmm. a um religious person, but I was just wondering how important do you feel faith and or spirituality is to you? It's very important to me. I grew up in a church. Um, I have my own church now. Um, I love gospel music. Um, you know, um, I'm a single mother because Kayla's, my daughter's father was incarcerated for four years uh, when she was born. And um, I feel like my faith is the only thing that kind of got me through that situation and um because all i really had was myself and uh, a baby <laughs> so i just kind of had to figure it out and kind of just rely on faith and um and kind of do the work you know i think as i got older i realized you just can't pray and just have faith you got to kind of put some work behind it and so um it's very important to me it's a active part of my life and i feel like it's um, the reason why I've had the success that I have had is just because I just I have faith, I believe, and I try to just be a good person. At the end of the day, I just try to be good to people. No, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things, and that's how I was going to wrap everything up, that we try to get everybody to do on the show and everything is to give any words of wisdom or any words of encouragement that you've not shared so far and also let folks know how they can reach you should they want to get in touch with you either for your advocacy work your legal work and all of that and if there are any specific types of law that you feel you are better at than others so one 
how they can reach you. But then we always ask our guests to uh, share their words of wisdom, their words of encouragement, not just to us here in the United States, but to those around the world, because it is a global network. So like I said, we do have folks that are watching from Australia, um, from New Zealand, from uh, Europe, from Asia, from Africa, from um, a number of places around the globe. So definitely any words of encouragement that you can share as many people are going through hard times. And apparently we're suffering from multiple pandemics because folks would argue that what's going on in our race relations is a pandemic. Folks would argue that what's going on in our climate is a pandemic. And definitely we know that we're in the middle of the COVID pandemic. So there are several pandemics in my mind, and that's just three of them that came right off the top of my head. I'm sure I could think of two or three other ones, but any words of encouragement that you can give to folks in general and also how they can reach you? Sure. The words of encouragement I would like to, you know, end off with, I think, is that um, live with integrity or, you know, live your life with integrity. And when I say and what integrity means to me is that um, anything I do, whether it's work related, personal, you know, related, I'm going to do it with integrity. So that way, if I make a mistake, if I um, something goes wrong that I didn't expect at the end of the day, I did it with integrity and people can still trust me um, and my character and know that, um, you know, I mean what I say, I say what I mean and everything that I do is back with integrity. So um, I know it's a hard time. I know we talked about earlier in the show about, you know, paying rent. Some people cannot pay rent. It's totally understandable, but have integrity behind it. Right. Don't just say, oh, I don't have to pay rent. Let me take advantage of the system, right? Because then now no one's going to trust you. So, you know, just try to just live a life of integrity. Um, and I think everything will end up working out for you um, and whatever, you know, goals you have in life. And then you can always reach me. I'd like to just send people to my Instagram because then they can just find my website there. So on Instagram, I am the lawyer next door. You can just go to that tag and you can see my website, kind of see, um, what I'm all about. Um, you can just catch me on Instagram. Well, I'm going to definitely have a thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. One of the shows that we have that airs uh, two weeks out of the month. So they actually do, I think it's four days uh, straight in a row, one week, and then they take a break and then they do another four days straight. So about eight days out of the month is a show that one of our founders, Nick Palvedo, came up with called The Lawyer's Den. So The Lawyer's Den is actually lawyers talking about legal issues and all of that. So I'm actually going to mention your name to him, tell him to watch this interview that you were with me and everything. And hopefully he'll reach out to you because it's lawyers from around the country. Nick is based here in uh, the North Carolina area. Um, one of the lawyers, um, Gary, I think is her name, is in I want to say Colorado or something like that. And then there are okay. some new lawyers from New York. So they're from throughout the country. I don't think they have, they may occasionally bring in an international lawyer, but I know that the lawyers are definitely throughout the various regions of the United States and all okay. of that. But it's a great show. And like I said, a lot of times they're just going back and forth about some of those things that we were talking about earlier, like um, talking about gun control, what the Supreme Court may do with that, what they may do mm -hmm. with this. And they come from different standpoints because uh, some of the lawyers are more of the, um, I forget the terms, and I don't know where you would fall in this. So actually, I guess this may be the side question that I need to ask you as well. So some of the lawyers that are on the show are, I think y'all call them um, constitutional lawyers. Okay. Civil rights. Constitutional. Mm -hmm. 
Right, but they fall within like that strict definition of the law. So that kind of definition where they are following the law totally, right. the, um, like literally, almost like the literal version right. of whatever was said and everything. And some of them mm -hmm. are a little bit more um, liberal in their stances and are more interpretive, for lack of a better term. So some of them are strict uh, folks that are like, the law says this and the law strictly says this, and others are more open to interpretation. From our mm -hmm. conversation, it sounds like your would fall more in that interpretation category. Than Absolutely, the everything can be interpreted. There's, there's a side for everybody. <laughs> right. I don't think that it's black or white. I don't think it's black or white. I think the law is very gray. Very gray. Right, and that's what, and there are there are some folks that would fall within that category on the lawyer's den, and then there are some others that would be like, you know, when they wrote it, that's what they meant to write it as, and there's less, I won't say right. that they're totally unstrict, but they're, mm -hmm. I mean, totally um, less flexible, but they are definitely uh, a little bit more rigid in their viewpoints. That's the word I was looking for. They're a little bit more mm -hmm. rigid in their viewpoints. So definitely, right. uh, I will tell Nick, as well as uh, Bill, who's one of the people that puts on that show, and Adam, uh, Lambert and a couple of the others that I know that I found this amazing lady and she's a great lawyer and y'all need to get her on y'all show. So at least okay. as a guest every <laughs> once in a while. So I will definitely okay. recommend that they add your name to the list as well. So if there's any final things that you want to share with our audience, I'm going to play that lovely little robot man, which I don't know why they gave me that robot man. I keep saying that and everything. And But any final words that you want to share either to you, uh, your daughter to the folks that are watching or anything else <laughs> before I hit that robot man and then we'll be out of here because then I'll hit the end broadcast. I'll just say I hope everyone's be safe this summer. Enjoy. I know it's been a tough year. Um, enjoy your family, your friends, and you know, go ahead and live your life with integrity and I'll close out with that. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, you are a truly great guest. And like I said, not just the lawyers then, but here on this show, I do hope to get you back at some point because I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and really enjoyed meeting you through Potted. And definitely I've enjoyed our conversation and I felt that people got some great enlightenment. And um, as my friend Brian, who does a show on LinkedIn, calls it, they can catch it now on a team replay because some folks watch during team live. Some people watch it, what he calls team replay. So. Definitely, they can catch the replays and all of that. But right now, we're going to hit that uh, intro, outro, and then I may talk to you for a few minutes um, on the other side of the end broadcast. And then I've got to do, believe it or not, Monday is my crazy day because in addition to my regular work, I do mm -hmm. three of these podcasts, two that are the streaming version and one that's the old-fashioned audio one. So I'm only one-third okay. done. Okay. <laughs> this is, this We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon.
Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by root metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks.